When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the walls, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of the associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over in plunder, as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight, from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuild the wall till all of it has reached the half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And when Sanballat, Tobiah the Arab, and Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Whatever you turn they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his <coughs> excuse me, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Their officers the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first, length of, first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. 
Those are the words of Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're very pleased this morning to have Gareth Lewis. Gareth's one of our members. You've often seen him behind the piano playing for us, uh, and he's going to come and bring the word of the Lord to us this morning. Gareth, I'll hand over the rest of the service to you. Thank you very much, George, for that. Um, Having had my annual cold uh, a couple of days ago, I've become a little bit hoarse in the past few days, so I'm very thankful to Johnny McGee for hopefully adding some gravitas rather than gravel uh, to my voice. So you're very welcome here. Uh, We're looking at this chapter, which talks about opposition to the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It's about 445 BC. This man, Nehemiah, who was a court official uh, at the head of the uh, Persian Empire. Um, He served the king. He, out of distress at the lack of worship of God, the broken down uh, walls of the city of Jerusalem, asked the king to come and help rebuild this wall. Why does Nehemiah do this, and why is this topic of of any importance for us today, two and a half thousand years on? Well, there's a phrase that um, I think it was John Piper that said it, that mission exists where worship does not. Mission exists where worship does not. And Nehemiah's mission was to actually get the worship of God visible and established once again in Jerusalem. The Jewish people, because of feelings on their part, had had their city and their temple destroyed in 586 BC, over 100 years before. And they were in exile for much of that time but they were starting to come back, yet they hadn't actually built themselves up to be the people that God wanted them to be. So this was Nehemiah's mission, to establish the worship of God, to put God's word and God's instructions for how to live at the center of these people's lives, and to do this in a very visible way in the city of Jerusalem by building up the protective walls around it so that enemies would not come in and destroy them. And our reading that George kindly read out immediately hits us with the opposition to this work. There's this man, Sanballat, who was a governor of Samaria, part of the northern area beyond Israel. These were people who had come from the Jews themselves, but they had also experienced exile in 722 BC, so 300 years before. Instead of, however, keeping God's truth alive, they had married other nations, and that meant taking on their gods, their culture, their philosophy, their practices, and they had all but ceased to hold God's name, the God of Israel, in high esteem. So Sanballat and Tobiah, another man with a Jewish name, but who probably had moved very far away from the truth of the God of Israel, you can understand their vexation when this man Nehemiah comes with letters from the king of Persia saying, I have authority to rebuild Jerusalem and I need your help. He's displeased, the Bible says in chapter 2, that somebody has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And I think for the next while as we, we look at this, I want you to think about the whole idea of opposition. Because as I was preparing this, I realized that there are probably few other enemies in Scripture who use the variety of tricks traps and stratagems that Sanballat and Tobiah use. They keep their power by force, by military force. 
but they also use mockery, lies, fake news, uh, political manipulations, writing letters. They have spies. They intermarry with the uh, Jews um, around Jerusalem. In fact, one of the grandsons of the high priest is related by marriage to Sanballat's daughter. So what you have here is opposition, not just necessarily obvious and in your face, but subtle, manipulative, and spread throughout God's people. In fact, it's not inconceivable that Sanballat may have actually been involved in building a rival temple on Mount Gerizim at this time. So not only were there political factions, there's also religious rivalries going on here. But we get this man, Nehemiah, who, unlike St. Ballot's story, Nehemiah is manifestly not worried about himself, but about God's people, about the worship of God. He is moved to seek the welfare of his brothers who are encamped in towns and villages around Jerusalem. They're not worshipping centrally. They're not in the place where God wants them to be and where his protection was promised. So he encourages the Israelites to remember this great and awesome Lord and to fight for their brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. Nehemiah is no fool. He's a governor. He's a smart man. He sees, and he's met people like this in Ballot before, people who are vehemently opposed to everything the God of Israel stands for. Sanballat issues this volley of poisonous-tipped arrows into the Jerusalem camp and into the workers there. What does he do? What are some of the strategies that he uses? Well, if you look at the text in the first few verses, he belittles their qualities. He calls them feeble Jews. He derides their ambitions. They say, will you actually restore this wall? He becomes mocking of their optimism. Will they even offer sacrifices? Will they restore worship of God? He lampooned their enthusiasm. Will they finish it in a day? Undermine their confidence. Can they bring these stones back to life? And he he magnified the problems they faced. The stones they had were heaps of rubble, and even then they were burnt. They weren't necessarily fit for purpose. They were weak. They were damaged. And his aim, as the text says, is to spread confusion, intimidate with his army, fight against, and halt the work of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. So when we face opposition like this, and it may be in our work in the Crescent here, our work of evangelism, our mission to let God's name be known, how do we respond? Nehemiah responds in prayer. He doesn't respond in a sanitized prayer, but his emotions are spilled out. He is angry at the opposition, the opposition towards God, and the despair that his people face. It's a prayer where he says, do not cover their guilt and don't let their sin be blotted out. Whatever else we think about the Nehemiah's prayer, it's an honest, passionate prayer. But what it does is it commits vengeance and revenge when he's facing opposition into God's hands. It's a prayer and a cry for justice, God's justice to be seen. Not personal revenge or vindication, but God's name and character to be upheld and respected by the nations. Sometimes when we find it difficult to pray, maybe you don't have the words to say, 
it can be difficult to let our emotions not to dictate what we say and the anger or the pain that we feel. But when we commit things to God in prayer, wonderful things happen. Yes, these walls will get rebuilt, and tonight if you come along you'll hear Tim talking about that. But just as an aside, I thought it was very interesting that Nehemiah's prayer is answered in a far deeper and greater way than you could ever understand. Nehemiah didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe God took Nehemiah's prayer for justice and that Christ himself absorbed a lot of that justice, as we learned in our breaking of bread, a lot of that wrath of God against the sin of people like the Israelites and the Samaritans here. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman who came from the same stock as this one of the greatest enemies of God's people. You can understand the antagonism that Jews had around the time of Jesus for these Samaritans because of incidents like this. And Jesus says, look, it's not on your temple in Mount Gerizim that you built, nor is it even in Jerusalem where Nehemiah was building the walls where God would be worshipped. But people who worship truly God will be worshipping in spirit and truth, and they will find in me that spring of life. Our Lord Jesus Christ took the antagonism and opposition that Nehemiah faced and he turned it in in itself so that he could release blessing. Our Lord Jesus was accused of being a devil and a Samaritan by the Jewish leaders. Now the Lord vigorously denied that he had a devil, that he was demon-possessed, but he remained silent and didn't disavow his identification with the Samaritan people. Nehemiah's prayer for justice, whether it was overly antagonistic or vindictive, I don't believe it was, but it can sound like that. Yet what it was was a heartfelt prayer for God to intervene. And ultimately God did in the person of Christ. So I think the first lesson is when we face opposition is, as the hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, take it to the Lord in prayer because he is undoubtedly doing far greater things than we can see, even in our lives, in his time, in a manner we couldn't possibly have imagined. So, Nehemiah prays, and in verse 9, the people pray as well. They've already worked hard to get to this halfway mark of building these walls. Their spirit was willing, but their bodies and their minds were in danger. Because if there was opposition outside, it was going to have effects on the inside. In verses 10 to 12, we find that they are in despair. There is discouragement. They are fearful of their lives, and they are vulnerable. This was a very practical, very, very practical problem they faced. The Jewish men who were living in encampments and would have been working on their fields, would have been working in trades to have food, to have resources they could sell on, to have money they could pay the taxes of the king of Persia. They weren't doing those things for the 52 days that it was going to take to rebuild the wall. They were in Jerusalem rebuilding a wall, not providing food for their families. And so there was a very real problem that the work would stop. And with this opposition their hearts could have fainted within them. So this is a problem that Nehemiah has to contend with. 
But Nehemiah knows what it is like for these people to fear. He trembled before a king himself. He can show compassion. He understands the needs of those who lack resources and suffer, suffer deprivation. In fact, as we'll see, if we get on to it in chapter 5, he suffered deprivation in his role as governor. He didn't take the food allocation to him because he didn't want to burden the people. But as a leader of God's people, as one who faces opposition, he wants to know details and facts. What are people saying? Why are they saying it? What are the actual problems that they're facing and how did they come about? Because only then can he put into motion spiritual, godly, sensible measures that actually help. So how does Nehemiah respond to this danger? Well, he does a lot of very practical things. These people are scattered. They're hungry. They're worried about their livelihood. He knows that the strongest part of this wall is its weakest area. The wall has been built to half height, but there's still a lot to come on. It would have been very easy for the Samaritans and one of the reigning parties to come to destroy a section of the wall, to kill somebody, to do something to make people afraid. So what he does is that rather smartly he goes, okay, you're concerned about your women and children. So actually, why don't we station you around the walls as a protection squad? He encouraged them in verse 14 to remember the Lord. To remember actually, this isn't just about their physical health, it's about their spiritual health and to rely on spiritual defenses. The Lord, great and awesome. He gets them to think about the bigger purpose. They're not just fighting for themselves. They're not just fighting for a nice bit of architecture. They're fighting for their wives, their sons, their daughters, and their very homes. Verses 15 and 18. He divides the teams into those who build the wall and those who protect it. He has a man who plays the trumpet so that when it sounds, people can rally to him and to areas if there is an attack. And he ensures that everyone in the city was guaranteed 24-hour protection. Now, these things don't really apply to us in terms of uh, how we live and work in the Crescent today or mission. But what it does teach us is that it's all okay to have a vague sense of resisting evil and oppression, but you have to have a plan and strategy for doing this. What are you actually going to do? Scripture tells us that our ultimate enemy is not Sanballat, is not some Samaritan governor, but it is Satan himself, a fallen angel, one who began in the company of worshipping God, but became proud, became self-centered. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Just like these weakened, less completed areas of the wall, Satan can sometimes isolate the believer and pick him off and damage him. Remember a couple of streets down where, where I, I grew up, uh, there was a lovely area of waste ground that we could play on when I was 9, 10, but it became a building site, and the men every day would actually ensure that, you know, the fencing was up, the gates were locked, and that nobody could actually get in to steal their equipment or to destroy the building works. But there was a fatal weakness that as a 10-year-old boy I was able to exploit. The wooden gate on the gravel uh, on which these fences uh, were positioned actually had a bit worn away and it allowed a little boy like myself and my friends to sort of slip in under and to, to, to enjoy this new playground of a building site. Now we didn't cause, I think, hopefully too much damage there, but actually it was a weakness that had been overlooked. 
So what Nehemiah did, he realized that actually, I don't know where the weaknesses are, but I know that opposition will come. It's not if it comes, it's when it comes. And I know that my enemy is smart and is looking for weaknesses. How much more do we today have responsibility to one another in the church to keep strong fellowship, to maintain peace, to maintain unity? There is protection from spiritual harm that we have in our mission of sharing the Lord Jesus Christ to the world and being changed ourselves in saying no to sinful patterns of behavior and to worship God as we've done this morning. We are not defending alone. We cannot defend alone. We must use each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be encouragers, to watch out for each other, to do the work, but also importantly, pray for the work. When I was um, a student at Queen's, we did a coffee bar evangelism on a, on a Thursday night, and we inherited a very good tradition where half of us would be down at the little coffee bar serving the students and talking to them about the Lord Jesus, while the other half would stay upstairs and actually pray for the work. And we would sort of rotate that round throughout the night because we knew we sometimes didn't feel it, but we knew that prayer was vital in accomplishing God's purposes. So remember our duty to our brothers and sisters as believers, as people of God, don't forsake meeting together. Don't think that your religion is a solitary religion, that you're here in the church as a, a consumer of you know, spiritual blessings, but think about how you can help your brother to build up the metaphorical walls of Jerusalem. Because as Nehemiah did that, it bared fruit. There was a resisting of evil. The enemies no doubt saw the people stationed at these low walls and they went, mm, we're going to have to retreat and regroup. And verses 21 to 23 show how the people have actually moved from the surrounding villages and settlements. They've actually moved back in to Jerusalem to be laborers during the day and guards by night. St. Paul writing when he himself is in prison facing opposition to the church of Philippi talks about he was set for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, defending its truth, but also establishing it and spreading it. And this is what God's people are called to do, not just in Nehemiah's time, but ours, to labor and to guard, to work for the establishing of God's rule in hearts and lives, but also to guard those same hearts and lives against the effects of sin, Satan, false ideas, false truths, and opposition, cynicism to God's work. God's word had promised the Jews that he was going to dwell with these discouraged, dispossessed people, despite their feelings and their sin. In fact, he was going to move heaven and earth to make Jerusalem great again and establish worship that all the world can see and flock to. And these people, Nehemiah is able to rally them around God's word and God's character, such that they can keep their weapons in one hand and their building materials in another. This is the pattern for the life of a Christian. It's not going home after a hard days of work and, you know, vegetating to a series binge of Netflix or whatever. It's not about serving ourselves or thinking, ah, we've made it, you know, God has blessed us. It is actually, there is work to be done. There is a mission 
to undergo. But we need to be protected. We need to be constantly alert and vigilant for opposition because it will come in different forms. Some, and many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the world, face opposition very physically, very in your face. But I would say for many of us, it may be opposition that is more subtle, that works its way into God's people in the church, that leads to discouragement, a lack of passion, a falling away from that sharp vision of who God is. There is a spiritual battle out there, and it's only by laboring in our faith and guarding it can we find in our worship day by day that God is working his purpose out, because there is a task unfinished that we face. For many of you here, you're going to see this in the daily struggle as Christian families to put the Lord first in decisions made and words said. Others of you will need to be reminded that this life is never going to be perfect. The security and maybe the perfection that you strive for in this world is going to constantly disappoint you outside of Christ. Sometimes you need to do some hard work in the Bible, in the Scriptures, to answer questions work colleagues ask you about why you believe, why you practice, why you think such and such. It's going to be impossible if we haven't spent time with God's written word and also following his living word to meet this opposition. Those that want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution as Nehemiah and the Jews did. But what he could learn was that God's good hand was on them because they were obedient. And in faith and trust, they stepped out into that darkness and they built something amazing for God. Let's look very briefly at at chapter 5. We don't have time to read it, so I'll summarize it briefly. A great outcry arises amongst the Jews to Nehemiah. What has happened is that there's been a small group of nobility in Jerusalem who have exacted taxes and interest from the Israelites. The Israelites have had to mortgage their fields and vineyards to pay for food. They've had to go and find grain. There's also been a famine around this time. And so they've had to sell some of their daughters and sons into slavery to actually pay the king's uh, tax for Persia and just to survive. Nehemiah sees this, and he sees what an awful thing that it is, that opposition has not just come from without, but subtly and passively from within, where God's people are mistreating each other. They're being self-centered and selfish. In fact, for some of these nobility in Jerusalem, the love of money and comfort had so crept in that they had actually opened the floodgates to make marriage covenants with Sanballat, Tobiah, and their families. They had made agreements or covenant alliances with them. In fact, this man, Tobiah, will eventually, when Nehemiah leaves for a short time, end up getting lodgings in the Jerusalem uh, temple, lodgings that should have been set aside to make provision for God's people. So this passive we're just in it for ourselves, led to great sin and great discouragement. So Nehemiah reminds the people of the gospel principles, of the spiritual, scriptural principles that should have guided their lives. He says to them in verse 9, he said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? And this is, in a nub, what can happen when opposition comes from within the church. People do things which are not right. Things which are against God's law, against his character, become accepted as the norm. In this case, it was exacting interest from people who were dispossessed and poor. And it's great to see that our church and many of the people in it have a desire to help locally and globally the poor of this world, to remember them because it's the right thing to do. But also what can happen is that the fear of God, this understanding of who God is, that he rescued them, that he saved people from slavery, that had been lost because these people were sold right back in again to slavery. They'd been rescued from Egypt as slaves. They'd been rescued from exile. And yet their own people were doing the very thing God's enemies had done to them. And finally what happens is that those looking around see these people are no better than us. They steal, they destroy, they oppress, they exploit, just as we do our people. They're just in it for themselves. This God they worship is the same as our gods. He's no different. So Nehemiah takes counsel to intelligently and lovingly bring the people of Israel back and says, return these people their fields, the money that you've taken. And they actually do obey. Nehemiah uses these things to support these struggling believers, a return to God's word, to the character of God, and to what other people think about him. So opposition from without requires sometimes a robust response, planning, preparation, expectation that the enemy will come and will needle us at our weakest points in our fellowship in our church and in our lives. So we've got to take stock, take heed. Sometimes opposition will come from within, from believers or people who claim to be believers who have lost their vision of God's glory. They've lost their fear of God and are becoming self-centered, and start to oppress others. But finally, for Nehemiah, he realized that he himself could also potentially be a cause of opposition and stumbling. You see, he had come as a governor, and the previous governors of Judah, in fact, it may even have been Sanballat or Tobiah, he would have been one who was close, so maybe Nehemiah had actually dethroned him in effect, These other governors had oppressed the people. They had taken, it says in verse 15 of chapter 5, 40 shekels of silver daily so that they could feed themselves, throw lavish parties, and live in luxury while the people were oppressed. Nehemiah didn't do that. In fact, he didn't even take his allocation for the governor's table, but instead, every day, He allowed up to 150 workers, men, Jews, and officials from other nations to come and to eat with him at his own expense. Nehemiah realizes he needs to provide a very positive example, a very positive identification with rebuilding the work. 
He cannot feather his own nest while God's house, while God's worship remains neglected. And in our fellowship, how many of us have been moved by good role models? People who really walked the talk, not people who were split, who were obviously out for themselves and said some nice things but didn't follow through, but people who in private acted as they did in public. I've had some fantastic encounters with great Christians in the Crescent who have encouraged and encouraged me and keep me on a path that keep me in fellowship by challenging me to be better than I am, by challenging me to serve other people, to be generous with my time and resources. So if you are a young man or woman, use your time and energy in this church to show what it means to progress in your faith practically to younger people. If you're an older person, think to yourself, what example am I leaving? What example am I giving my families? Okay, we maybe come to the church and maybe it does look like spiritually the walls are a bit knocked down. It's maybe not what we want. Maybe the teaching isn't that good. The music isn't that jazzy. We don't, you know, see as much fruit for the work as maybe we would have liked or we think should be in the good old days. But do you take that and do you carp and complain? Or do you take that and help to build up God's kingdom, God's city. There's a fascinating detail here that I end with, which is that Nehemiah was no racist or xenophobe. Nehemiah wanted God's worship to be pure, but he didn't want God's people to be just made up of Jews. He wanted the worship of God centrally so that other nations could come and flood in. Nehemiah, I believe, took steps to show the highest standards of conduct in public office so that people seeing would have nothing to say against him. He got himself right so he was able to take the speck out of his brother's eye when they were doing wrong and also to form a united, if you like, approach and front to the opposition that they would face. And this meant he was effective in helping God's people ward off the attacks of enemies. Nehemiah wanted people from other nations to come to know the God of Israel. And it's our desire in this church, in this fellowship, for you all, no matter where you've come from, and looking out, there's a wonderful diversity of people from all parts of the world. Some of you will not be able to understand what I say because of my accents, because of the words I use, and I'm sorry about that. But please ask other people that can explain things more simply to you. Because we want the God of Israel, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be your God as well. He's not a Jewish God or a Western God or an Eastern God. He is a God for this whole world. There will be opposition to this. You will find opposition in your lives, voices discouraging you, telling you that this is all a lot of nonsense, but they're false they're not true. Come to the God of Israel and find out his worship and what a wonderful God he is. Let's complete our service by singing two songs which talk about how great and worthy of praise the Lord is, number 126. And then we'll follow that immediately with the Lord is my salvation, which talks about how God does save us no matter the difficulties we face, and ends with this wonderful blessing to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.